We've got a 20 in Wisdom, but only a 9 in Charisma. It's Red Pages Podcast. everybody, it is the 23rd of July in the year 2015. This is Red Pages Podcast episode 57? Yes, 57. Uh, I'm Justin, and I am an eternal pillar. I'm Paul, and I'm a tormented what even. Uh, okay, and today we have a guest with us. Guest, who are you? I am Chris Avalone, and hopefully I do not have 55 minutes left to live. Uh, I don't know. I guess you'll find out. It's basically a self-answering question where it just keeps me in suspense. But you know what? I like the drama. It'll be good. Uh, I mean, if you die halfway through the podcast, we're just going to have to weekend at Bernie's you. Yeah, that would be fine. And you know what? People probably can't tell the difference anyway. They'll be like, hey, you know, just just record a soundbite and play it back and it'll sound like Avalon. Little little known fact is actually before the podcast even begins, we like just record Chris Avalon saying every single thing in the English language so that yes. we can just like digitally reconstruct them afterwards. Ask ask yeah. your camp counselor, Mr. Black, about Yes. No, I we can do we can do all that. Or did we? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I could be just a recording right now. Yeah, you could already be dead. <laughs> or a robot. <laughs> or a, <laughs> right. Uh, all right. So Gord unfortunately is not here this week. He is suffering from some sort of maybe terminal throat disease that he claims hurts so much he can't talk. He said to me yesterday, yeah, I've got like a sore throat. I'm pretty sure it'll be better tomorrow. So it's a good thing that we're recording on a Thursday instead of a Wednesday. And then he said, no, it got worse. Also, I'm never going to be able to speak again. That sounds pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah, I told him that he should take Tylenol, but he said it's illegal in Japan. Tylenol so, is illegal in Japan? Uh, I So I didn't believe that, but... Uh, I think it's illegal to just buy over the counter. You can get a prescription for it. Wow. Okay. I have I have learned something. I today today is a win. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's so what I said. I said, how can Tylenol be illegal? It's along with aspirin, like one of the basic medicines that you take if you don't know what's wrong with you. Yeah. You know, it's little things like that when you go to another country that can really throw you off. Uh, going to Canada for me was discovering that you can't order. Uh, a burger uh, done, you know, cooked medium. They don't, they actually don't allow it. Uh, and then uh, going to Singapore and then being warned before I go that I better be very careful about any chewing gum I bring because you're not allowed yes. to stick that anywhere, or take it out of your mouth. I'm just like, Jesus Christ, do they kill people over here for that? And I don't yes. know. I started getting really terrified of every little thing. Like, have we been spoiled here in America? Like, I don't know. I, I have friends that live in Singapore and when I heard about that chewing gum thing, I was like, how, how is that? Because it's not illegal to have it. It's just illegal to sell it. You can't buy it in the country, yeah. but you can bring it you in. Know, I feel like it's the, where we're doing that opening for Pulp Fiction where they're discussing, <laughs> discussing like, the Royale with cheese. Like, it's, it's right. things like that can just, right. like, make you, make you pause before everything you do once you go outside the national boards. Or maybe just, you know, I, we're just doing it all wrong. I asked them why they can't have chewing gum, and apparently it was about their trains. 
it was entirely because of the, the national trade system or something where chewing gum wasn't illegal and people were sticking the gum on the like the part of the door where they stay, where it closes and they touch to, to dispose of their gum and it was gumming up train doors and so they just decided to make gum illegal. Wow, um, that is like the butterfly effect. That is uh, wow. Okay, I I have learned another thing. I'm hoping that they weren't lying to me because that's a really good story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I hope they are because you can turn that into a pretty good work of fiction too. That actually would be pretty good. All right, guys, we we should probably uh, get down to what we've been doing over the past week or two or our year in your case because you have a much wider span of time since the last time you were on this show yeah. to talk about stuff. It feels like a very short period of time. Does it really? Yeah, maybe. If, I, I, don't, I don't like the idea of time flying, but man, it's it's been it's been busy. Yeah. So but we're back together again. We're talking. It's good. I, you know, I worried it was where you were going to call. Like, uh, you know, it was going to be weird. But no, no. That's I feel like you know we're comfortable again. We're talking. It's good. Yeah, it's like you never left. Ever. Yeah. You, you, we've we've actually just had this call running in addition to our other set <laughs> calls for the past year. Yep. That's really how we recorded you saying literally everything. What the hell is slowing my internet down? Jesus Christ. Oh, it's out. <laughs> it's dropping, and we're doing the same thing to him, but we're both being silent so nobody can tell. I want to write a story where this happens now, where you just have a, a call. Man, that could be an episode of Black Mirror, right? Where you just oh, have a call over oh, to yeah. somebody I, wait, for a full geez, year. Wait, isn't this like the basis of a uh, horror movie, like a really poor horror movie that released in like the past month or something? Maybe. Uh, you would, it sounds like you know the most about this, so uh, maybe. I, I, just, I just remember seeing like uh, trailers for this every now and then. It was about like this girl who gets murdered, but then all of a sudden her Skype shows up and starts calling it, people. Was it like called Unfriended or something? Yeah, that was it. That was one. Yeah, I, that looks really bad. It, it's, uh, probably, I mean, it's probably this, my Netflix queue because I can't resist just you know, really bad premises like that because I, I honestly want to see what they do with it. <laughs> Right, it's it, it's like it's shot like um you know Blair Witch style, but through people's webcams, and just like it's just right. like film of you watching people's Skype conversations as like they get murdered off just like just barely off screen or something like that. Oh, um, it but, got really uh, poor reviews. I am I am surprised by that information. Like I, I, I this seems like that would be a a pretty pretty well done movie all around. Yeah, it says it's got a 61% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is way better than most horror actually, movies. Actually, that's, that's, that's true, true, actually, yeah. Blockbusters, too. That's, that's pretty impressive, actually. I, it, actually, it seems like it was a huge success, because it, uh, with a budget of $1 million, made almost 50. That's, that's okay, that's a, okay. That's a win. Yeah. Look for Unfriended 2 next summer. Unfriended. Okay, well, okay, I'm looking at what it was opening against. It was opening against Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, so, you know. Oh, okay. It's it's not. I'm not going to say that the deck was stacked in its favor, but a good weekend to open up, guys. Let's yeah. let's go back to Black Mirror. Like what okay. a great show that is. Yeah, wow. I, I'm excited for the film. I what? Yeah, Did Robert you? Downey Jr.'s Robert Downey Jr.'s production company picked up the rights to. You are kidding? Oh, the um, God, that one episode, the entire thing. yeah, the entire the entire history of you episode. Where they record oh. everything is gonna. He he picked that up for a, a movie adaptation. You know, uh, one of my uh, friends has an eidetic memory, which I used to think was the best thing in the world until I watched that episode. 
And then I realized the hell that she must be going through because the ability to remember everything and analyze it and analyze it must just, I didn't realize how horrible that could be. And that show did a fantastic job of showcasing how technology could screw you over like that and drive you mad. And every episode is just so good. Like I, I can't say that I feel good after watching each episode, but there are some that I felt good at you. They're so, they're fantastic. Yeah, I, th- I think that they were all good. Some were definitely better than others, but right. it was such a good series. Yeah, actually, um, Sleeping of uh, Black Mirror, I, I remember, or Justin and I went to see um, Sleep No More uh, this past weekend, and uh, it there's just something about that experience that really reminded me of one of the Black Mirror episodes, White Bear, um, yep. just because of the way that uh, you, as an audience, interact with these actors. It just felt very similar in that, like, you're given these set rules, you can't interact, um, but otherwise, you know, have fun. So, Chris, do you know what Sleep No More is? I do not, but now I'm curious. Okay. Oh, man. Okay. Man, you, you, you're going to love this, right? I'm, I'm um, buckling up. All right. And uh, for listeners, this is probably also worthwhile. <laughs> so Sleep No More is a in Manhattan theater space. So these, this group, uh, Punch Drunk, is the name of the theater group they have. Basically, I don't know if they own them or if they're just renting them, but it's been a couple of years that they've been in the same space. They've got two warehouses that were just, I guess, vacant in Manhattan that they transformed into what they call the McKittrick Hotel. Okay. It is done up like a 1920s hotel with a jazz bar and a restaurant in it. Very cool. Okay. So you, you go in, and you can eat dinner there if you want. You could have drinks, but when you... When you get in, you check in like a normal hotel, and they give you a playing card. That playing card is your entrance number to the show. When you when it's your turn to enter, they give you a mask, like a plague doctor mask from the uh, wow. Middle Ages. Everybody in the audience has to wear one of these at all times, and you are not allowed to speak while you're in the show. The show takes place over the 100 rooms of this two-warehouse complex. Yeah. It's every huge. single room, God. yeah, every single room is done up like a place. So this the show is Macbeth, but there is no speaking, and it's significantly influenced by Tarantino and Hitchcock. Some of the novel Rebecca is in there. Wow, that sounds fantastic. So the characters just walk around the entire space performing, and it loops three times. You could just walk into, so there's a floor that's like an insane asylum, there's a floor that's, uh, like, there's part of it that's a forest. There's part of it that's some, like, houses with rooms that you go into, um, like a giant ballroom dining hall space. It just flows from one into the other sort of organically. Okay, I'm sorry. Do, so does the audience move through these rooms? The audi- yeah. yeah. You're given the free audi- reign. Yeah, you don't have, you're not ever supposed to be at one place at, at any given time. Interesting. So you have free, yeah, you could just explore and Everything is so well realized, like, if you walk into this, like, Macbeth's apartment, you could just pick up every single, you can open up all the drawers and every single one of the pieces of furniture, you can take out all the books. So it's like being in a video game that is 100% perfectly realized. There's just no, because there's no, there's no, none of that ludonarrative dissonance because it is in the real world. That sounds fascinating. Wow. The only, sort of, there are a few concessions to it being a theater production that there are people who are in black masks and they will block your way if you're trying to get into somewhere where you're not like, <laughs> off stage. Yeah, they're, they're real life through the um, walls. 
Yeah. Um, Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> and there's an entire floor. So they're like, there's an entire floor of the hotel that you usually can't get to unless you're accompanied by a character. But but through your exploration of the space, you might be in the right place at the right time to get pulled in for a one-on-one with one of the characters where they give you a scene that mo- that nobody else gets to see. Jeez. Or so they might give you a quest to do that you need that you have a limited amount of time because the show is only so long. Or like I got pulled aside and I got read a fairy tale and served a cup of tea. Um, I know people have like had oil smeared all over their faces and given a sword. It's it is it is really really cool. Everybody I know who's who went to see it has come out to oh. say it was the best thing. Okay, so what was the was the fairy tale and tea? Was that the most memorable room and experience, or was there one that really stood out to you? So it, because it's, I think it's like seven floors. And that was the that was the most memorable part as an experience that I had, like something that happened to me. But what I did was I ran up the stairs to just the top floor because I figured it would be empty and I would have the greatest chance of seeing something unique there before the the crowds got there because everybody else just went up one floor or down one floor. And going through the entire insane asylum complex because it, it's all it's really dark. The entire thing is really well, dark. That, that, makes, and that makes an asylum you know feel even friendlier, right? And <laughs> there is just ambient like Silent Hill. Right. Yeah. The first like awesome. ten minutes it was, I was there, it was just getting yeah. used to dark vision and just hearing this like creepy Silent Hill esque sound. Just like occasionally there's jazz music and that's a little easier to yeah. handle. But going through the entire insane asylum and then out through the asylum into the woods where I found the cottage where I had my thing, that entire sequence for me, it was, it was just like, oh man, like I understand that this is a theater performance, but this feels like I'm in a Silent Hill game. Yeah. And other floors were less intense than that because each, each is a different place. I know, I know what you mean about the darkness, the, the darkness, uh, one of uh, my acquaintances, uh, she's part of this uh, Zombie Joe's Underground Theater uh, up in mm-hmm. up in Los Angeles. They they do this show where you're a little bit well, you're actually very close to all the actors and all this very variety of horror scenarios that they play out in front of you. Uh, and I, as gruesome as they can be, and as unsettling as they can be, um, aside from the fact that all the doors are closed and you realize you really can't go anywhere. Um, the worst part was when they would turn out the lights and you would hear the actors moving and then mm-hmm. they would flick the lights on for a second and then keep doing that in sequence. And you never knew where the actors were going to be or how close they were to you. And that was pretty terrifying. Uh, wow. the, the lack of vision and the proximity, I was like, Okay, I think I'm thoroughly terrified right now, and I want to leave. Yeah. Anyway, if you're ever in, if any, you or listeners are ever in New York, this is a definitely a must-see thing. Um, especially if you're a game designer, because they're like you want you want to see just a perfectly realized environment. Here you are. It's it's almost like a you know how Disney is really really good at constructing experiences and places within their totally fake worlds. If you've ever been to like a Disney World or uh, yeah. any of the exhibits they set up, it's like that, but just even more so for what it's doing. That sounds fantastic! Um, wow, I, I I I would like to do that. That's great. Now, speaking yeah. of Disney, uh, sorry, just a quick tangent. Uh, one of the best level design talks about uh, 
how to construct a, a level for a video game was based solely on Disney principles about how they set up uh, Disneyland and Disney World. And to this day, I still quote principles from that talk because it was so brilliant. Like, it was, hmm. it did uh, this, this uh, thing where he's like, you know what? Uh, be aware that most of the player's attention is going to be on items you might normally take for granted, like trash cans or doors that you open, and how that can translate to things like chests. And if you change the visual aesthetic for those objects you know the player's going to interact with, that does more to sell the ambience of a level than perhaps like one or two vistas that you might try to pretty up for the player. It's, it was a pretty great talk. If I, uh, if I could only remember the name of the designer who presented it. was actually quite a number of years ago. But Was it at a GDC? Yeah, it was a GDC talk. I feel like I've heard this talk before, maybe. It's probably in the GDC vault somewhere. It's in the vault. Yeah, so I, that's it's funny because that's how I went through a bunch. So there are a bunch of strategies for this thing. Like, you could follow one character around the whole time. You could just explore. You can sit, and I, you could sit in one space and see who comes through, and I tried all of these. But what I would do, like, I would see a scene where I think, like, Macbeth and Macduff were fighting or something, or Banquo was getting murdered or whatever, and there would be a bartender in the scene because it was taking place in a speakeasy, and I would just watch the bartender, because I knew that the <laughs> actors are going to be, the actors are going to be doing what they're supposed to be doing because they're the principal characters in the scene, but I know that the bartender has to have something interesting to do all the time in case anybody looks at him. So I just watched that guy yeah. the whole time. Actually, I remember um, uh, there's uh, the uh, lobby clerk slash bellboy person um, and I remember I was watching him for a bit, and I got ultimately bored, because it turns out that he just has, like, five minutes where he just, like, is record-keeping in a logbook, uh, right outside the baggage <laughs> claim. Okay, as you will, <laughs> exactly. if you were doing and his job. Really, oh, he's just doing his job, and so I, I left and eventually, like, uh, ran into, like, uh, Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, or something like that. Right. Yeah, I kept trying to find the loop, like, where where do these characters' animations loop? They <laughs> But uh, I, I couldn't find it, and I know that it loops three times, but I just, yeah. I just, just never in the right place at the well, right if, time. I, if you um, stayed long enough in uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's bedroom, bathroom yeah, thing, sure. like, you'll, you'll see it. And I did, because I stood there for way too long. Huh. Ah, well, I guess that you're better at finding that stuff than me. Did, uh, anyway. did either of you guys find uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? No, oh. I don't think that they're in Macbeth. That'd be <laughs> oh. really funny if they oh, were. Oh, totally! I, I totally spaced and saying Hamlet. Wow, crazy. Yeah, uh, okay. See, I, we did yeah, that yeah, a whole yeah. bunch. My brain checked. Although, if they were there, that'd be awesome. Like, here's what we do. We're not. Here's what we do. We're not in Hamlet. We yeah. hang out with Macbeth well, because that'll be better. Well, where was Hamlet at school? He was in England, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like before before Hamlet started. So like they could have popped over to Scotland. It's possible. It's, it's possible. They're they're a trick. I don't think. I don't think they take place in the same time period, but given that this was time shifted to the 20s, who cares? Actually, if you're, like, at the right spot at the very end of the show, right before they come out, you get to see uh, Lord Fortinbras come and uh, just conquer conquer Scotland for Norway. I'm here to restore order and make you all feel better. So I've heard that there is something sort of like this in San Francisco called the Speakeasy. I've never been to it, so I can't tell you whether it's good or not. And I think it closed temporarily on the last month, but it is looking for a place to reopen. So if you live on the West Coast and this interests you and you can't get to New York, keep your eyes peeled for the speakeasy, and uh, maybe that is a something that is as good. Was, or, it, was you know, it also actually a speakeasy as well? I think it was. 
Um, they've got an entire, if you go to the Speakeasy website, which is thespeakeasysf.com, um, for a while, it just looks like it's a website for a, a pocket watch company, which is pretty good. <laughs> and then eventually it tells you how to get in and it gives their entire fake history. Um, but it does say that they are, that their, uh, their gin joint was subject to a raid on the 21st and they are temporarily out of operations. Got it. Okay. So, uh, they have a, they have a mailing list where they'll tell you when they reopen. Yeah. Are you going to check that out when you, uh... When they I mean, yeah, sure. When when I move in two weeks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, when they inevitably reopen, right? So, Paul, that was something that we did, but you you were listing what you did. So, did you do anything else this oh, week? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, BoJack Horseman had its second season come out, and uh, like a good sad person, I, I ended up binge watching all of it almost entirely in one night. Um, just. Because I, I think I watched, like, four episodes before uh, going to Sleep No More. And then after I got back, I decided, you know what, I do want to just finish the season. And so I barely got any sleep, but it was totally worth it. Are, like, you, are, are you a completionist? No, I'm not necessarily a completionist. But I mean, like, I have uh, Orange and the New Black, which had the same treatment, but I, I'm not, like, anywhere close to finish with that season uh, yet. Um, it's, just, it's just something about um, the way that... Bojack is set up that makes it really uh, interesting for me to watch. It's also each episode is only like twenty minutes, which, helps. which helps. Yeah, you're like I, I can get a chunk of this and keep going. Yeah, you can watch three episodes in an hour ish. So yeah. and Orange is the New Black is kind of weird. I just you know I watched two seasons of it and I I'm still having trouble finding a character that I identify with and not not because of gender, just because I don't find any of them very sympathetic. You know, that may have been intentional, but mostly right. I'm just like, I, I really want to root for somebody, but I don't know who that person is. <laughs> right. No, you, you constantly see them being, like, really selfish assholes, like, all yeah, the time. It's like, wow, I don't really care what happens to this person now. Like, you can just get flushed down the drain, and I would not care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're doing good things with uh, Pennsylvania this season. Like, she's way more of a sympathetic character, as opposed to being the uh, season's villain, um, which is... With good, it's making it uh, less. Uh, it like I don't know. There's just something about make it, having like these villains in the seasons um, feel like kind of off because um, it feels like a show that's much better better as just going to like uh, character vignettes and like going to like who are these women who happen to end up in these situations. Yeah, you know, I, I felt that way about Lost too, where I just, I mostly enjoyed the the how did the character get to this point episodes versus what was actually going on. I, sometimes I feel that way about Orange the New Black, too. So you're saying that she's a Lannister in that she is initially unlikable but has depths and interesting character development? Uh, ow. It depends on... Depends I, on I've never seen this I've never seen this show, so I, I'm groping for some way to... No, uh, I, I, that works for a number of the Lannisters, except possibly... Tywin and Cersei, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, I'm not sure right on about the others. Anything else, Paul? Yeah, we got, uh, got other stuff. The latest episode of True Detective was really, really good. Um, but yeah, we finally convinced Paul. Our uh, convinced uh, <laughs> okay, so I'm 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 just gonna say it. Uh, True Detective uh, is frustrating the hell out of me because it seems like a lot happens, but it doesn't really. So yeah. mostly all I get are, well, the murder's still unsolved, and I don't even care about it anymore because there's all this noise 
that never gets resolved. Yeah, they just keep introducing new things. It's, it, I feel like I'm watching a bunch of character studies that don't go anywhere. Like, there was even one episode, and this isn't a spoiler, where this explosion of action happens that ultimately means nothing. And that's when I really right. broke. And I actually uh, turned to my girlfriend, and I'm like, what, this, is, this is episode four? Like, how many episodes are there because nothing has happened? And I, I, she was like, you just need to calm down. Like, just, it's just true detective. It's Colin Farrell. Just give him a chance. He needs work. I'm like, no. Like, I like Vince Vaughn. He, he looks very threatening and I'm, he's got struggles, but I, I don't care what's going on anymore because they're not, they're not pacing out the reveals or I guess keeping me, like, I'm making any gains while watching this show. Yeah, it's right. Sounds like you're in the, you're in the Gord camp. Yeah. This is similar to what he was well, saying. good uh, for you, we, Gord, because you <laughs> yeah. uh, True Detective Season 2 can lick my balls, because they need to get moving with some plot points. So, I think this was the first episode that he liked, because it was actually going yeah, somewhere. Yeah, did, like, a whole bunch of exposition and moved the plot along. Um, right. But, what I said was, it would have been a better season if they had started with this episode and done the other four episodes in flashbacks like they had for the first season and expl- to explain how the characters got here yeah. instead of just giving us all of that development okay. where they just sort well, of... I, I will say the last episode, which I believe was episode five, uh, I feel mm-hmm. like one major thing got revealed and that was it. And ultimately, I would argue it probably isn't that important because you saw it coming a mile away. So, I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll give it till episode six, because I love season one. I thought season one was, it, it could get slow, but I'm still interested in what was going on. But season two is just leaving me cold. I, I kind of just want to see where it's all going. It's weird, because it's the same guy. Right. It's the exact I, same guy. I, I, it can be the same guy, but he's telling a different story with different characters. And right. I think it's, but it's weird that they're so tonally different. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I, like, I remember uh, reading, um, I think someone from Polygon did like this uh, walkthrough of this yep. latest episode. And uh, the thing that really struck out to me from uh, his uh, what he had wrote was that this is a season that it's kind of hard to just enjoy like you could like uh, with um, the first season it's one that you just kind of have to be like there taking notes and then like reading over your notes going like oh this could be an interesting point later on and that's like seems to be the way to actually enjoy the season uh, okay um, I hmm. I mean I am entertained still so I'm going to keep watching it I wanna, I, I'm just hoping it goes somewhere insane Right, yeah, that's true. Like, like the other one. I did. have a lot of respect for Rachel McAdams for taking the character that she did, and you know, maybe that's a, maybe that's a change of pace for what she wanted. Cause it felt like she was being typecast into a certain role, and she's definitely not that in season right. two, which, which I appreciate. So I, I like that aspect. Of it. I liked her scene in in this in this episode in uh, the just ridiculous over the top um, scene where she's in uh, what what is it the uh, counseling like harassment yeah. harassment counseling. I was like, you're you're doing really you're doing work with this scene. I like it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that scene too. Yeah. Well, all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 I guess. Do you have any anything else? Oh, Paul, wait, 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 one more thing. Don't, wait, don't wait. they actually change the intro lyrics? 
Yeah, and they do actually do that. It's the same song every time, but it's a different segment every time. Yeah, I, 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 thought, um, I didn't actually notice that, and then my girlfriend pointed it out, and I'm like, oh my god, I, I'm like, ah, how, much, yeah. how many more subtleties am I missing? Probably tons. Yeah, they, they actually, like, it's, I think it's the same poem that they're splicing up uh, in different ways uh, to do the intro music, and it, you will notice, like, very small variations in the first three episodes, and this fourth one actually went a lot farther in changing up, like, the middle verse. It's pretty interesting. I've, I've yeah. been enjoying Yeah, and it relates to what's going yeah, on exactly. in that. I, I love that. Yeah. I didn't actually see the, the theme the first week, so I didn't even know that that was going on until, the, like, the second or third week. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I came to it late. All right. Um, yeah, that's, that's it for me. All right. Chris, what have you been up to? Wow, I feel like, uh, compared to that, almost nothing. Um, so what have I been up to? Um, well, sorry, as far as movies went, uh, I saw uh, Inside Out, which, you know, my, maybe everybody saw it. Uh, I thought it was typically Pixar brilliant. Like, I wasn't actually that interested in going to see it, but then when <laughs> I did, it, it had the usual Pixar Hill hallmarks where they set up a very, very complicated world um, it's how it all just clicks together and they pace out the information to you in such a way that it's easy for you to digest. And I, again, like they pulled that off and, uh, I thought that, you know, I thought the voice acting was great. The animation was great. Uh, I thought the ways they, <laughs> they made fun of and represented the human mind were, were great. Uh, like when, uh, when they encountered the one, one imaginary character who, like because he's an imaginary friend, he has all these amazing abilities that are just childlike and ridiculous. Like whenever he cries, he cries candy. Like that's that's great. That's exactly Such a what a kid would want their imaginary friend to do, and they would make him cry and cry and cry. And then um, <laughs> uh, then I went. Uh, uh, this is gonna be embarrassing. But I went to see uh, Ted too because I like the first one, and then uh, I enjoyed it. And then I, for some strange reason, I kind of wish that Ted would join Suicide Squad because I think he'd be a great, a great addition to that team because I'm not really sure how that movie's going to turn out. I, I watched the trailer for that and mostly I was like, okay, it's a little bit better than I was expecting. Like, you know, Suicide Squad's not quite top tier DC material, but, you know, this, this could be fun. And then I got to the end and I was like, wow, Jared Leto, I hope you get some better lines because your look is out there and your lines are terrible. Like, I, wow. Actually, I had to go back and watch uh, uh, the original, not the original, but Tim Burton's Batman to sort of like clean it out of my system. And then I'm uh, going to watch uh, Dark Knight again to try and clear it out of my system. But man, that trailer was kind of like a downer. But um, but anyway, uh, for, for good, more interesting stuff, uh, I ended up reading a book called Vaporware by Richard Dansky, who's a... Uh, a writer for Red Storm Entertainment who I admire a great deal. Uh, and he basically writes this horror story about a video game that refuses to be canceled. Like, it literally refuses to be canceled. And I was reading this, and there's some scary parts to it, but mostly I'd recommend the book just as a way of looking into what life as a game developer is like, because... He's right on. I mean, obviously that you know that's that's what he does for a living, but the way he captures it 
is very real. So if you're ever interested in knowing what day-to-day life of a game developer is all about, uh, vaporware is, is it. Um, and I transitioned, I transitioned that off of um, another book uh, called Forging Divinity, which uh, one of the designers at Obsidian had written. And it was refreshing because when you read something that someone you know has written, it could go, mm-hmm. it could go either way. Where you're like, oh god, I hope they never ask me if I read it because <laughs> it could be terrible, and I don't know what to say except, wow, that cover art was amazing. Who was the artist? Uh, but no, it was uh, it was really cool. The spells, the spell system did something kind of interesting that I like, and that every spell in that fantasy world had a cool drawback, like. Um, you would might be able to like do various mind magics that would allow you to uh, to read people's minds or affect their minds. But whenever you did that, the drawback was that you would start forgetting like little things or major things, depending on how much you exercise the power, which is pretty cool. And and he does really inventive things with the spell system. Although while I was reading it, um, the weirdest thing that happened was the way he described conversations between two people, um, and, and the, the author's name is Andrew, Andrew Rowe. Uh, Andrew would do this thing where he would describe the facial expressions and the gestures of each character to such an extent that it distracted me and made me wonder if, hey, you know, if you ever do like a dialogue combat sequence, like this is how to do it. Like what you do is, you know, you choose your animation, you choose your stance, you choose your tone, you set your eyebrows a certain way, like all of, like even a head nod or even whether you're whether you're directly making eye contact with a person, all of these things can do can do damage or they can affect how much you can convince another person. I just got totally distracted and I think I wrote like a you know, a one or two page design doc on how on how that dialogue is gonna play out because I just got so distracted. But yeah, no, those were uh those were two uh, two recent uh, books that I read, and I'm and I'm glad I read them. So I'm you know I'm, I'm, I I rarely had time to read uh, a few months back, and now I, I'm like oh thank God I have some time to get back to books that I love. So cool. Do you have Do you have any other nope. like hope doing? <laughs> All right, and I guess I, I will go very quickly, no, and then we can jump off. Time. <laughs> uh, I, I mean. Most of what I had did was sleep no more and BoJack Horseman and True Detective. <laughs> very similar. Um, I did, but I, I did read. I'm not finished with it yet, but I'm I'm maybe a third of the way through the new uh, Ghost at a Watchman book, which is the sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, which came oh, out wow. this week. Um, and it's it's really good. I mean, like, did anybody doubt that it was going to be good? Uh, I, I did. I, I mean, maybe. Did you oh, really? Yeah. I think what, like, uh, why? when authors separated from their works for a certain period of time, uh, there sometimes dissonance occurs to the point where it actually hurts the previous work. And the first time I saw that was um, Catch Twenty Two, and the the, the sequel, the quote unquote sequel to that, oh God, what was it called? Uh, was not very good at all. And like everything so, you loved about Catch Twenty Two, you're just like, wow, like something happened. Right. The interesting thing about Ghost at a Watchman is that she wrote it before she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird oh, okay. and just never published it. So she wrote it and she submitted it to her editor. And it was her first book. And her, her editor said, the flashback sequences in this book are really good. Could you expand those into a full book? And she did. And that became To Kill a Mockingbird. So she wrote them basically at the same time and just only She's published saying, one oh, of them and then lost the manuscript 
and they found it like a year ago in an attic somewhere. Oh. And she, there was a huge controversy because people were saying that she was coerced and didn't actually want to publish it. And her friends were saying, no, we've spoken to her. She definitely wants to publish it because she never published anything else after To Kill the Mockingbird. That was just the one thing that she wrote. Um, so it finally came out and it's it's good. I mean, it is just like the same people doing the same sort of well, stuff. That's great. She wrote in the same time period. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, they were very much the same book for a lot of their development. Great. Okay, that's awesome. But the difference is, so the difference is that To Kill a Mockingbird is, because it was based on the flashbacks, it's set in, what, the 40s, I think? But this is set much later, sort of after the civil rights movement, after Scout is an adult and has moved to New York, and she's moving back, or she's not, she's she's visiting Atticus back in Maycomb, and it's... a lot of people, I'm not going to spoil anything important because people might want to read this, but if it was in the New York Times, I'm going to figure it's fair game. And people were really upset because Atticus is a really huge racist in this book, where he was just, that was not at all what the point of him was in the original. You know, I don't know how familiar with it either of you are, probably from high school. But, you know, like, Atticus being the, the lawyer who fights for the downtrodden and doesn't care about race or anything. And now, now he's a racist. And that doesn't sit right with a lot of people. And I think it's interesting because when you're a child, you because the first book was from a child's perspective, you, the way that you view your, view your parents and your parents' merits is so different from the way that you view your parents when you're in your 20s. And you see them more as people and less as gods, and you you see all of their flaws. And I think that that's it's just a really interesting way to put a spin on a character that is beloved, but now we get to see a different side of him. I think that's really interesting. Anyway, that that's basically it for me. Well, wait a minute. Um, let's rewind <laughs> okay. that. But but the revelation of his racism was jarring. For a lot of people, it was, was, was it because for you? Uh, he, uh, I guess my, so I guess my I, point is like, I have not. That, that's that's a pretty strong vein for a character, and if there was no hint of that in the other, so I mean, I haven't finished the book yet, so I don't want to make any like, declarative statements about it. But from what I have understood so far, and in To Kill a Mockingbird, he said a bunch of stuff like "I try to love everybody equally, and it doesn't matter." who you are, you deserve full protection of the law and all those sorts of things. And I think that this character is, what, 25, 30 years older. And, you know, as people get older, they become much more conservative. That is just a thing that happens a lot of the time. And also, we're not seeing him through this sort of lens of childhood where you don't comprehend everything that your parents do do, or understand why they do it. If they say something, that's just, you you take them at their word. And so I think that the difference in perspective probably contributes to that. And I think that also Atticus's racism is a racism that might, I, I think is alive today, where people are okay with the existence of people, but they don't want them in my neighborhood. And I think that a character could say, yes, these people deserve full protection of law, and they, I, you know, they are human beings, absolutely, but they, they're they not quite there yet, 
they don't fit in my particular little world or, you know, version of society that I want to live in. And I think that, again, you know, going back to what I just said, as you get older, those may become more attractive ways of thinking. Well, I mean, uh, obviously, you know, you're reading the book and I haven't, but when when you get to the end, I'd be curious to know if uh, there's some change that occurs that sort of maybe would explain his perspective <laughs> that where, where cause my point is like, if, if that's such a strong thread to the character, the fact that there would be no foreshadowing in the other book or no indication of that just feels so weird. Yeah. There are a lot of think pieces being published right now saying, how do we reevaluate to kill a mockingbird in the light of this? Wow. book? Oh. How do we think about Atticus as a character who is now way more complex than he was a week ago? Right. Like, how do, like, how can we, some of the stuff that he said in the original book, how could we view that as through a lens of maybe he has both of these views at the same time? Well, you know, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a third book that's hidden somewhere. Sock drawer. Yeah, I, would, I think it's really interesting that this book comes out at this time, sort of when we have a bunch of, sort of renewed civil rights issues between races. And I'm worried that the next time it, you know, next time that that happens, there won't be another book to come out because, uh, to kill a mockingbird came out during the civil rights movement, right around that time period. So anyway, it's good. Like it's, it's, I'm enjoy. I feel like I'm enjoying it a lot more than I enjoyed to kill a mockingbird, but I read to kill a mockingbird in eighth grade. So who knows? Yeah, I should probably go back and reread it after I'm finished with this. Anyway, so let's now let's talk about what we've been playing. Unless anybody has any last minute. No, I'm still thinking about what you said. That's just, that's pretty heavy. Ooh. Yeah. Well, great. Now I'm going to be awake all night. <laughs> is is it okay to be a racist if you're old? I don't know. I, no, I <laughs> ah, my brain. You say how? What? What is the? What is the exact year when? If you're before that year, you're not allowed to be a racist. But as soon as you've heard, like, 76, that's the year. You're allowed to be a racist. Oh, boy. I wonder, somebody should commission a sociological study on that, because I bet that they're... Because everybody seems to tolerate racism from incredibly old people, because that's just the way that they are. wonder where that breakpoint is. Uh, yeah, you know, it's not always racism, either. Like, I think, uh, you know... Sure. Once you get past a certain age, uh, people just tend to be more forgiving for some reason of behaviors that would absolutely not be tolerated if uh, you know if the, if the person was younger. Like they're just more forgiving. It's really it's really interesting. They figure they're not gonna they're not gonna change at that at this point. They're yeah, or they're harmless or like oh they're you know they're just being that way. It's 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 ridiculous. I mean, we could probably do an entire set of a hundred theses on that. <laughs> So, um, why, why don't you why don't you tell us about uh, ghosts of what, what did uh, dragon siege Spear? of dragon Spear. Well, siege of dragon Spear, right? Ghosts of dragon Spear is a character. yeah. You know, I was like uh, the head of Beam Dog, uh, Trent Oster. Uh, like I've known him for a long time, and he and the lead designer for Siege of Dragon Spear, like they just dropped me a line and they're like, "Hey, would you be interested right. in playing a new Baldur's Gate game?" I was excited to hear that Baldur's Gate was getting an expansion. Uh, However many years it's later, pretty great. It's a good story. It's, uh, I was pretty impressed. <laughs> so, so Trent and the, the lead designer uh, uh, Philip, they were like, 
So I've kind of got a new adventure in the Baldur's Gate universe, like, and not just like, but like the universe, but like in the Baldur's Gate series. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. And they're like, would you like to play it? And I'm like, oh, duh, yeah, of course I, of course I would. Would you like this chest of doubloons? <laughs> yes, I would. Thank you very much. Um, That's careful though. They're uh, first. They, you know what? Uh, that is always a chance with doubloons because obviously, if they're sitting in a chest and no one has robbed it already, they are either dead or there is a curse involved. Likely, the curse caused them to die. So, <laughs> I would. So, was this video game cursed? <laughs> Uh, Are you warning people not to play it because it is it was, uh, Well, I guess, like, uh, one thing that kind of stood out is, I guess, you know, obviously, with, like, between, like, the Baldur's Gate 1 um, and, you know, the, the expansion, like, Tales of the Sword Coast, there's this passage of time, and then Baldur's Gate 2 starts, and then Baldur's Gate 2 says something cryptic about, like, you know, you you know, having to leave Baldur's Gate under mysterious circumstances, which you don't recall. And you're like, okay, well, I guess that's, you know, something that just kind of happened. And then um, what uh, what Siege does is I think that they answer all those questions, and I think that they do it in a way that's... They could have taken the easy way out, I think, and they don't for a number of plot points that occur in Siege. Uh, I mean, there, and there were, there were so many things that stood out. I mean, as a game developer, you recognize what sorts of things are hard to pull off in a role-playing game, um, for, you know, either because you're jaded or tired, or you're like, wow, that's a lot of resources, or maybe the player doesn't need to have that experience. Like, maybe that could be done with just, you know chapter narration text and they they don't take the easy way out what they do is um they're very respectful of what you went through in Baldur's Gate 1 like the final confrontation with Saravok they continue and they they sort of allow you to sort of see the tail end of that and then they add on to it by showing the repercussions of what happens of confronting Saravok. And, you know, and then for any, any viewers who are not aware of the Baldur's Gate uh, plot line, the idea is that uh, you're, you're this, uh, a ball spawn, which means that you are one of many of the progeny of this one dead god ball who is the god of murder. And there's many more progeny out there that are all, all, all vying to, to be like uh, the Highlander. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I will be the one. Uh, and in the first game, you fight one of these individuals, Saravok, and you, you defeat him, hopefully. Otherwise, you didn't finish Baldur's Gate 1. And the repercussions of that, I think they show very well in Siege of Dragonspear. Like, you're allowed to explore Baldur's Gate, um, which, which they could take the easy way out and say, oh, it's just too much resources to have the player go and see any any part of Baldur's Gate they just left. Well, why don't we just move them to another another chapter and get and, and you know and just do that? And then they don't. They allow you to see the repercussions in Baldur's Gate, which I thought was was pretty cool. Um, also, it's really big. Uh, I guess one thing I was kind of surprised about is it's actually bigger than I think any any expansion I recall playing. And it's actually for any game or just for uh, this? actually for just about any game. Uh, it, I think it clocked in about 
25 hours and the the content that I did play like there were still sections missing not not story sections but like uh like side dungeons and um optional encounters but man there was just a lot to do and that the fact that they still hadn't uh done some of the side dungeons like so obviously like with I mean there was a lot of like dungeon crawling uh setups but the encounters weren't 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 fully set up for those situations yet but the, all, all the storyline the storyline arcs were all set up and all the all the dialogue was in there so um i played through that and even that was was a considerable length of time so uh and they also did this other cool thing where um it's a, they they actually did have for the core dungeons a lot of the content was there and then they did this really cool icewind dale thing where there's certain optional battles they make you aware of and they're like you can do this battle if you want to, but we're going to let you see it first and make your own decision before you have the optional battle because it's probably going to be pretty hard. And they do some nice encounters with that, which I thought was pretty cool. And um, one other thing that I also, I also enjoyed is they could have taken the easy way out with with calling it a siege of Dragon Spear, because Dragon Spear is a is a castle location in the Forgotten Realms, and it's um, it's being uh, being held by the antagonist of the game, uh, who I could also speak to about. But she, uh, you you basically are are coordinating an assault on that fortress, and they could have taken the easy way out and just said, hey, you know, why don't you and your party of adventurers slip in there and only do a few things we'll, like we'll have the war take place outside where you can't see it. And nope, they, they, they go all out with an actual, Oh my God, how many characters are on the screen? And Oh my God, I am in a war. I am in a war. And I was just like, I can't believe they did this, but I was loving it. So uh, it made me appreciate the fact that there were actually health parts over the characters. Cause I'm like, I, there is so much going on right now. Thank God I can pause this because <clears throat> <laughs> there was a lot of activity. Um, no, but uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought they were very narratively brave with a lot of their uh, their ideas, and it, it does a really good job of transitioning from the the climax of Baldur's Gate one, and then setting the stage for Baldur's Gate two. And it, and it uh, it made me sad at the end because uh, of the of what occurs, and you know, a, a game hasn't really made me feel anything for a long time, and but. When I got to the end of Dragon Spear, I was like, "Oh, you know, this is why all my buddies are this way, and here's their attitude, and here's how they feel. like." It, it was it was kind of crushing because it makes you feel really good because you you're you know you're able to once again adventure with like all your old friends or a number of them, and then at the end, like seeing things kind of take the down take the the dark side and go downhill in some respects was really kind of heartbreaking so they they and i i'm you know hats off to them i i was i was pretty impressed that sounds like it's it's this is not an out yet right no they're uh so. they're still uh as far as i know about the release date is uh trent has been very adamant that it's it's okay. done when it's done and he just wants to do a quality right. job with it which i which i respect right yeah it sounds great fine. we i have not I know, I haven't played Baldur's Gate. Um, it's one of the few Bioware RPGs that I never played. But uh, we, we were talking the other day about maybe doing a, like a group playthrough and streaming it you or should. something. You should. No, it's uh, definitely worthwhile. And, and Baldur's Gate too, especially. Like, uh, 
it's a you know it's a good series to have a to have a to have a reference point on. All right, have you played anything else that you want to talk about? Uh, no, actually, that's that's uh, pretty much been about it. Um, I played some games for research, but to be honest, if I if I said them, it might broadcast too much, so I will, I will leave that under the hood for now. How about you guys? Um, I played one new game this week. Basically, I, I played a game uh, called Persona Three Fes oh, because I right. I've heard that Persona is good, and I tried playing Persona One a, a couple of years ago, and I I could not get into it. It was I'm not gonna say it was garbage, but it was really bad. Like I, I guess this like. I've heard people speak so highly of this series, but never of the first one, and I just figured I would start with the first one, and I think this maybe was a series that didn't find its feet until the second or the I third one. didn't find its feet until the third one, to be honest. I don't know. I do. I have heard people say good things about the second okay. one. Okay, I... Yeah. But, I, but mostly about the third and the fourth. Anyway, so I decided to start this. So this is a really interesting game, because it's an RPG, and it's like half JRPG and half Western RPG. So it's got all the combat systems of a JRPG when you're actually fighting an enemy... There are no random encounters. You just but you run into an enemy and then it does a like it, it goes into a battle screen. But a tremendous amount of time in the game is spent basically mass affecting up your high school classmates for relationships and friend friendships like you would in in a Dragon Age. So I guess it's a little more like a Dragon Age than a Mass Effect because every single character has a like a visible approval bar that you can. Fill and up you in that. You gotta fill that bar up. Yeah, it's not actually a bar. It's just a number, but you can make the number get bigger. And you do a whole bunch of stuff, and it's not really clear what it's doing. You get a lot of stuff that's like you you do you do this right, and then it gives you a point in academics or in courage or something. It's it's incredibly obtuse when it comes to explaining what any of those points do. Most of the time, I've run into one thing where it's just like the door to this room is in a different language, you can't read it and because your academics isn't high enough. I'll take those so English classes, that, that was just like... Yeah, that was, that was... No, it's not English either. Another character said, it doesn't look like English. I don't know what language it is. Yeah, that was, that was a very clear, like, this is just a skill check that I can't pass. But most of the time, I don't know if it's like... If I'm getting new conversation options because I have certain skills or anything, I kind of like that because it just feels like the way that things actually would be. Something that the Fallout games, I think Fallout 3, I don't know, I haven't played anyone's past 3 for any length of time, but something that Fallout 3 did that really bothered me was it would give me a dialogue option and then it would be like, you have a 20% chance to pass if you use this dialogue option. I, number one, that tells me that that's a skill check and I should just be save scumming to get it if I want it. And number two... It just feels bad to see that number well, I, there. I, I, you know, I don't. I, I, it's, I don't think it's a twenty percent chance. I think it's like a, you, you, you have to have your skill above a certain level in order to 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 to, to pull it off, which is a little bit different. Uh, okay. The way that I understood it was that higher skill would give you a greater percentage chance of passing no, that conversation. Uh, we, we, I think we may have just dispensed with that. Um, well, this is in Fallout Three, right? Right. You, you, like, you, uh, but we we had that argument in Fallout Two because mm-hmm. yeah, ultimately yeah. that game proved that. So, for example, in the end game for Fallout Two, if you have a high speech character, there's something you can do to level the end game in your favor because you need right. it. But there's always mm-hmm. a there was always a five percent chance that that wouldn't happen, 
and you would be so royally screwed. And also, you would lose all of your benefits for trying to be a speech character in that final moment, which I guess some disrespect could be considered cool from a game designer perspective. But from a player that spent like 40 or 60 or 80 hours playing this game, to not get the ending that you've devoted your gameplay towards felt like kind of like highway robbery. So mm. that that was a big debate for the Fallout skill system. Because, I mean, originally it was a random chance to pull off certain skills, but even that randomness after a while, we weren't sure how worth it, how worth it, it was. Huh. Well, if that is the case in Fallout 3, then the game did not communicate the systems very well to me, because I just got a completely wrong impression of how it worked. Which I guess is a different Yeah, problem. in New Vegas, uh, the uh, way they set it up was uh, if you don't have the skill level, you get the crappy version of the, the response, right. which could be pretty entertaining. And you, and you know, obviously, that this choosing it is probably not going to be the best option. But uh, some of those are pretty entertaining to write. Yep. So the game also just tests your real-world knowledge. Like, you'll be in school in a class, <laughs> and it will just be like, how long ago was language invented? And it just wow. gives you three choices. Out. Like, uh, yeah, it's like actual school where you have no context as to uh, the question. Yeah, I, I was just like, I don't think any of these numbers are right. I'm going to go online and look it up. And the, the internet told me that it was none of those numbers, but actually here's the one that does the right answer in the game. And that was a little dissatisfying. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that these sorts of skill checks are entirely non- required. They're just little bonuses to help you get there a little faster. Mm-hmm. You think you can still max out everything, even if you get them all wrong. They're just they're just for role-playing, right. which is nice. I, uh, I have uh, an anecdote about uh, real-world knowledge from uh, from games being tested, uh, which I, I, I feel compelled right. to share, especially after the Fallout discussion. Uh, so, with Fallout 2, a, a manual was shipped that looked like a school course book, like one of those, uh, you know, modeled, uh, modeled uh, uh, white and black, like uh, uh, notepad uh, books. I, I forget exactly if they have, if they have a term for them. But ultimately, when you open them up, they have a classic, like, multiplication table, like, here's how you convert measurements, uh, like, like usually those books did for school. But the Fallout 2 right. manual did that, but all the values were wrong. On purpose. Nice. And Uh, the trouble was people didn't realize that, or at least some of them didn't. And they actually tried to use the Fallout 2 manual uh, tables and conversion charts in tests, and then it totally, (laughs) totally ruined their score. And, yeah, so your story for Persona reminded me of... uh, a reverse situation about how a game contaminated a real-world answer. <laughs> nice. Yeah, um, this game is definitely... I'm enjoying it a lot more than I expected I, I would, given that I'm not a huge anime fan, and it is, it is very, very anime. anime. But I, it is it is just unapologetically Japanese, and the localization is very careful to just to preserve that instead of trying to westernize it, which I appreciate. But it means I run into all sorts of things like because it runs on a day system, and you know you you get you, a certain number of days to do whatever you want to do. I finally had played far enough into the game to reach the weekend. I was like, all right, Saturday, I can finally do all the stuff and go go to all the explorable locations. 
Like, it was just like, nope, Saturday is when you also go to school, because this is Japan. (laughs) I was like, ah. kind of hell world? (laughs) Saturday. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, ah, okay, game. You win this time. Yeah. You only get one day off a week from school in Japan. Sorry, are you going to keep playing? Yeah, I think so. I would like to see where it's going. I like that it's sort of roguelike in its combat system. I don't know if you've played this game, so I don't know I how much... I played Persona 1, and my uh, obsessive-compulsive uh, need to collect every single thing actually stopped me yep. about 15 minutes in, because like, it was clear I couldn't get everything. Yep. I'm like, I, I, yep. I, I, I'm not satisfied already. <laughs> okay, so Persona 1 did you, was all first-person, you may remember. You just, like, walked around a dungeon crawl. It was, like, it was sort of like um, Eye of the Beholder, I guess. Oh, Eye of the Beholder, wow. Where you just, you're in a, a dungeon in first person, moving along one tile wow. at a time. Um, but in this one, it is still in a dungeon like like that, but you're in third person. You have your party around you. Um, the dungeon is randomly generated every time you go in. But there are checkpoints, so like if you make it to the fifth floor, you'll just be able to teleport to the fifth floor, and it's it's going just straight up into the sky as a tower. Um, but you do, and you have your party with you, but you do not control your party. You only give commands for your main character, which is mm. interesting. You sort of have to rely on them to not make just terrible decisions. <laughs> And if oh, you go down, strange. it's game over. That would actually make me hate my companions a lot more than I think I otherwise would. My companions? You can, so you can give them AI routines. Okay. Like, you can say, okay, I want you to only cast healing spells, or I want you to only use attack, basic attacks or whatever. So, like, I haven't had a problem with them yet. They seem pretty competent. Um, if, I, apparently, if you get the PSP version of this game, you have full control over your whole party, but it cuts out all of the school exploration stuff because they couldn't fit it hmm. on the disc. So, they also added an entire second campaign where you play as a girl, uh, if you want to play as a female character. So, there is no definitive version of this game. You can get the original or the FES edition, which has all of the stuff in the original with some tuning changes and an extra campaign at the end. Or you can get the PSP version, which is a different game, it feels like. So, I got the, I guess, the console one that had the most stuff in rebalancing in it which seemed like the right choice. But, uh, yeah, it is, like, I was not immediately turned off from this game like I was with Persona 1, which I find heartening because it means that I guess I'm not broken when everybody <laughs> else said they liked Persona. Right. You just played the uh, wrong Persona. I, I just played the wrong Persona. The first one looked really promising. It had a cool opening, and then it was just like, hey, you want a bunch of stuff that's not explained and also impossible to win? Here you go. I don't know if I'll actually finish this game because it's a game made by Atlas, and I don't think any human has ever finished a game made by Atlas. They're all a thousand hours long. But uh, maybe I'll get there. I will there. say Atlas has uh, certainly uh, turned out some some ones that I love, like some of the uh, the spell systems they set up for some other games. Uh, like when I used to play them on the Nintendo DS, like I was like I was like, man, yeah, this is so much better than see. most of the other spell systems in PC games I play. Right. Yeah, I, I I say that, but I yeah, I have actually finished an Atlas game, and it was Catherine, oh, which I thought oh, was yeah. really good. I, I still have not finished uh, any game that was either made or published by Atlas. Um, not because I didn't love them, but they just like felt they're they're, they're so, so long, long. Every single one, and I have no clue what's up with I've, that. Company. I got to the final 
I got to the final boss of Radiant Historia, which is also a really good RPG. It's it delivers on the promise of Chrono Trigger if oh, you want a time travel wow. story. Okay. That's that's pretty bold. Um, yeah. So you know how in Chrono Trigger you wanted to be able to go between times and change stuff just arbitrarily and it would be reflected sure. in the world? Yeah, this this game does that. It's got like three different time streams that you move freely between and grab stuff from one to solve puzzles in the other all wow. the time. That's just what it is. And it is uh it's got an interesting battle system. It's sort of JRPG, sort of not. It takes place on a grid, like a tactics game, but you're not allowed to move to every space. Anyway, it's really good. If you liked Chrono Trigger, you'll like this game. I, man, Chrono Trigger was one of the uh, the first and best RPGs I ever played. I it still did stuff that you know a lot of RPGs nowadays, you know, like I think, would be too scared to do, and they yeah. <laughs> they do it yeah. so well. Oh, Chrono Trigger. When the when, like when the world in Chrono Trigger just opened up to me at, at that point, I was just blown. I was like, "Oh my gosh, how much game is yep. there? This, this is such a big." All right. So that's that's all I've got. Persona was what I played this week. Paul, Paul you? what about you? Um, I played or I I um bought bought the craze that uh, everyone has been getting into recently, which is uh, the joy that is Rocket League, uh, which is this really sweet game. It's uh you get you're playing a, as a car. Uh, and you get to, like, double jump and have a rocket attached to it, and you just play three and three soccer. It, it's super silly. It sounds like it would be uh, just, like, kind of a crappy free-to-play type of game, and it has a lot of those uh, mechanics in it, but you do have to pay, like, 20 bucks to actually get the base game. But, like, it's surprisingly fun enough where I don't actually care. Um, there's, like... Almost no getting good at the game, just because it's a very physics-based game. It's just you running around, or driving around, trying to hit a ball into a goal. And you kind of just go from, like, being absolutely terrible at driving and hitting the ball into uh, being okay at it. And that's kind of where the skill feels like it ends. Maybe there's more to it, but um, I certainly haven't done it. So is it sort of like... Is it sort of like Gang Beasts in that it's impossible to actually be good at it? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's not impossible. It just feels like it's, it's impossible because, like, it doesn't seem like there's, like, a, too many mechanics to it overall. You just drive and try to hit things. Uh, there's some interesting things you can do. Like, uh, if you uh, use your double jump and start propelling your rockets, you'll actually, like, hover in the air and you can sort of fly around. Um and, like, there's some really sweet plays you can do with it. I saw a gif of someone just, like, barreling down the field, hitting a ball that was, like, super far in the air and managing to hit into the goal. Um, but those plays are, like, really difficult to do. But that's also kind of, like, a benefit just because, like, every time you do something really cool, it just feels so amazing. And even if you're, like, losing, you'll always find, like, one or two moments where you may, you or someone in the game has just done something, like, really impressive. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, creating those moments is an important part. Like, if that's what that game is, it's just one of those, like, you'll do something cool every couple of minutes games. That's, like, yeah. that's valuable. And it's, it's, it's like, um, each round is only five minutes long, so it's, like, really fast-paced overall. Oh, so yeah, it's like, it's like Fletchman's. There's really short matches. Like, they can, they can be really back and forth, or they can just be completely crushing, but it's still fun regardless of the result, just because everything about it is just kind of silly and... Uh, looks really good. And it controls so well. And what's this game called? Uh, Rocket League. Alright. 
There you go. Car soccer. Yeah, car soccer. It's real good. Um, how how likely is this game to be uh, implemented in real life? If, if you could um, manage uh, to make... Hold on. Like, I'm sure they do it at Burning Man. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, just, just put some rockets on a car. Seems right, fine. Right, exactly. Just... There's, it, it's actually pretty sweet. You can, if you uh, have your rockets on and you crash into an enemy car, you can actually demolish them. Okay. Uh, then you respawn like <laughs> in like five seconds. So it doesn't actually. So it's like that much. But yeah, it, but yeah. But point of the goal, uh, the point of the game is not to actually murder people, though you could. Hmm. Well, I mean, this seems like a thing that might happen in the future. Uh, Steve Wozniak plays in a Segway Polo League, right? So it's not that far fetched. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're. Uh, I mean, there's a slight difference between uh, segways and rockets, but I. I not see... really. You can buy a jetpack. They do exist. Okay. That is the one thing I learned from Kickass. <laughs> what that you can buy a jetpack, or that Steve Wozniak plays it. Everyone could buy a jetpack. Say, <laughs> I wasn't sure if you meant that Steve. That you learned that Steve Wozniak plays at a, sol- at a segway polo league. No, that would be something else that I I did not know and and gets added to I think the four or five things possibly more that I've learned during this episode. Here's here's some of a Steve Wozniak fact you probably didn't oh know. boy all right I'm buckling up. Did you know that he was for a long time the world champion of Tetris in Nintendo Power? Wow, uh, I would believe that. He's, and he's, if you he's, he's if you pull out yeah, if you pull out old issues of Nintendo Power when they allowed you to to uh, send in your scores with just a picture of your screen, he was just the number one every week or every month until they told him he wasn't allowed to send them in anymore. <laughs> uh, and, and then he started submitting them under a different name. So if you see ones under Zao, I think it is Z A W, that's him because it's just Waz backwards. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, Steve Wozniak was, ruled Nintendo Power for ages. Did you guys uh, say King of Kong? No, oh. I didn't. I wanted to. Yeah, no, I never got. I, around I, to I it. never got around to it. Uh, it's totally worthwhile, and uh, it is far more than the premise, which is, hey, uh, you know, you're a Donkey Kong champion. I'm a Donkey. Kong. Let's have let's have a face off and see who's better at the game of Donkey Kong, and then it becomes so much more. Um, in a really amazing way that, uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. I wasn't that intrigued by the premise. And then um, one, after watching it, uh, it actually became a much deeper movie about just sportsmanship. And uh, I, it was pretty impressive. I mean, I feel like if I'm going to watch one video game movie this summer, it's going to be the Adam Sandler vehicle, Pixels, Gee, right? Right. Well, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. that's, getting, that's getting torn apart in reviews. I know. It, it, I mean, I don't think any... It's not a fun, fun experience to film in Canada, and they, they hated the, the filming of that movie. And I don't think anybody thought that movie was going to be any good. It has like a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes, so clearly wow. some people did. I can't imagine. It's too bad. Like, the premise sounds interesting. I'm like, maybe because I'm just a game developer. Like, yeah, I'd fight Pac-Man. Sure, fine fight Donkey Kong. Give me some weapons. No problem. I'm sorry. Sorry, Peter Dinklage. I'm sorry. Sorry you're in that movie. Yeah. He, uh, he's, he's been in worse things, right? Maybe. <laughs> One where he's a space wizard. Sure. All right, so why don't we move to the questions while we have about enough time to ask these questions. Listener, listeners sent in questions. Disclaimer on these questions ahead of time for listeners. Uh, they, they may have been lightly edited for length or content uh, because some of them were quite long. <laughs> um, 
and and while we love you, we don't want to spend an hour on one of your questions, especially if some parts were not as relevant as others. All right, so so uh, Chris, well, now, Chris, now, now, I, now I want to see these full questions. Now I'm very excited. I you you got sent the list. Were, but, uh, those, were those trimmed down? One of them was trimmed down very significantly. Oh, oh my god, I definitely want to see the full because <laughs> I, I can send it to you, okay. but it's, it's not worth it's not worth reading the entire thing. Are you sure? Okay, well, now now I'm curious. Okay, I, I mean, it was mostly just talking about how good The Witcher Two was. Oh, okay. Well, I can understand that. Yeah, but it, it wasn't relevant to the question. It was just a long digression about why The Witcher Two was a good game. Yeah, uh, it's got great reactivity, like all The Witcher games. Like we actually. Uh, or at least I had the when it came to design elements like Witcher does reactivity great. That's what you should look to do because they <laughs> they have a really good sense about that stuff. But I'm going to shut up and let you ask a question. Sure. All right. So the first question comes from Aldereth, who wants to know Olden. if if you if you Chris would uh, be interested in developing games for mobile, and if so, would it be a CRPG considering? most mobile CRPGs, and uh, there really aren't any story-heavy CRPGs. Are there opportunities there? And then he says that he hopes that you say no, because... Nice. <laughs> because it would be a sigh of relief from your ardent fans that you would never move to mobile. Well, just because I want to make him cry, I'd be like, yes, I would consider it, because I've seen some amazing stuff on mobile. Um, I think, actually, one of the best story-based games... I played was a game where you're a spider um, and they did a lot of the storytelling in that game obviously from the spider's perspective and he's going to this house like doing like eating flies and bugs and whatnot but while he's doing this he's investigating all the nooks and crannies who let's see uh, and of, of the person who lives in this house and all these little like visual elements are telling the story of the person who lives in the house. They're doing it in a very non-obtrusive way um, where you can pay attention to it if you want, but I thought it was a really subtle way of introducing story into a game that really has, like, no dialogue and no conversations. Yeah, it was, um, it was called, like, Spider, I think Secret of Bryce Manor, and I think the developer was Tiger Style. Yeah, and it's definitely worth checking out. I, I really enjoyed it. But it, seeing a game like that made me, like, reminded me that it doesn't matter... The platform doesn't doesn't always matter for conveying the story. Usually, it can sometimes just provide more opportunities. And um, I certainly play a lot of games on mobile. Like I, you know, I I played the hell out of Tiny Tower, you know, and I I enjoy Fallout Shelter quite a bit. And as I'm playing those games, especially Fallout Shelter, uh, I look I, I I do think about ways where you could introduce RPG elements into that, like. It, technically, in Fallout Shelter, you could have 200 protagonists, but it would be fun to, you know, take on the role of one of them or several of them as a party, and then you could actually do a lot of the RPG mechanics that exist in the Fallout universe. And I think there's there's opportunity there. I I I, I would absolutely be open to doing that. And I'm I'm happy to disappoint Aldrin. I'm I am happy. <laughs> The mobile platform, I, I think, just provides more opportunities, and I would definitely be up for it. And you can blame Fallout Shelter if you want to, but but uh, I'm I'm not backing off that position. That Spider game reminds me a lot of the game Deadly Creatures, which I heard was really good. It was on the Wii. I don't know if you know it. I do, but not. it was uh, it was a game where you played as a uh, a scorpion, I think, and a tarantula, 
and it's you uh you just want i guess moved through these environments out in the desert but you were sort of tailing two humans which were Billy Bob Thornton and Dennis Hopper <laughs> who were looking for uh, gold that was lost during the Civil War, but you just sort of moved through the environments and managed your way as you followed these two humans, figuring out what the story was by hearing their voice acting. Cool. But you were a, you were a scorpion. When you when you mentioned you'd be a, you'd be a scorpion protagonist, I thought it was going to be a game about like can a scorpion change its nature, and I was like, oh wow, this, a, <laughs> this could be a much deeper game than I realized. No, I no, I, I have not played that. That sounds. <laughs> cool. you, you played a scorpion from Mortal Kombat, <laughs> of course. Oh, right. okay. That's that's probably that's, what this that's the one. article. Yeah. All right. Uh, uh, so Permafrost Jack asks, uh, could it be possible to release the potential plot for Coder? I mean, uh, Paladins of the Ancient Federation Three in some way? Wow, doing uh, revealing the plot for Knights of the Republic Three. Uh, no, no, no. That's that's I not mean, the case. I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, what Paladins of the Ancient Federation Three? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I would actually prefer to make it. Uh, I think that would be far more awesome. Uh, I'd also love to team up with a lot of the, uh, the Bioware crew to do it. I'd love to work with, uh, with Gator and Drew. And if there was a new story to be crafted in that, in that unfinished trilogy, I would, I would absolutely love to do it. Um, I would not want to release the plot because one thing that's more dangerous than messing with the force is messing with Mickey Mouse and man Mickey Mouse has some good lawyers and I would not want to cross that line because Mickey Mouse is all fun on screen but off screen you don't want to mess with that guy so uh, ultimately my answer is I would prefer to make it didn't they uh, knowing almost nothing about the game didn't they do uh, like a Shadows of Revan, where Revan came back in the in the MMO that they've got out now. Uh, quite possibly, I, I, I gotta confess I haven't followed the MMO uh, from start to finish. Uh, I feel I, like they did something with him where they brought him back, and he's in the MMO now. I would not be surprised. Yeah, I guess I, it is the same IP, right? So might as well. In a desperate bid to get people to come back to that game, they'll do anything. Wow. <laughs> uh, not, not, not to knock that game. Not, that's not saying it's a bad no, game. I, just that it doesn't I, have a lot of players. I think you just did. I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that the number of people playing that game being a low number is an objective fact. True. And okay, fair enough. So I think that they will do a lot of things to bring people back. The new, like, man, I, I didn't enjoy the time I spent in the like beta for that game when it was free. But they have some great cutscenes, and I would like to just watch them do a bunch of of Star Wars cutscenes because they're good. Yeah, they they I mean they do a lot of cool stuff in the MMO. Like I I I, I don't deny that the uh, the I mean I, I like the idea that you could send like you know your your companion NPCs off on missions. I thought was great. That was pretty awesome. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of people at work would just bought the hell out of it, and then they, they had like all sorts of auto-generating cash reserves available. But yeah. uh, what I noticed was, at least in the initial uh, core game, that most uh, most folks would just play through every single class because it was like playing like six Mass Effects. Right. And, yeah. That's, and, then, and then after that, great. like their interest would flag, and then uh, right because there was nothing at the end. There yeah. Was no, like, max level content or whatever. Yeah, I think that they're doing, like, a full reset on that game with the new expansion that's coming out. I don't know a lot about it, but I, that is what I've gathered. 
it's like time skipping several years and just starting all over in a new story. Yeah, I'm still not sure what to think with the new Star Wars movie either. Like, uh, the trailers are just kind of confusing me mostly. All right, our next question comes from Murica Dream. Murica Dream. Who says, if budget slash profit is not a factor, what game would you make? Also, if you have to pick one character from the game you've worked on to be your real-life companion slash BFF slash rival, who would you pick? Why? What would your favorite activity together? Wow. Okay. Lol. That's a lot of questions. So that's, uh, that's two questions, really. So first, why don't you do, if, if budget is not a, uh, not an issue, and then you don't have to worry about making profits, what game would you make? Wow, if budget wasn't an issue, that's a very rare condition. Um, <laughs> well, uh... Mm, this answer might get a little boring. Like, but I, I couldn't necessarily say because I think I might just do it. Uh, but I will say that what became apparent during a lot of the Kickstarters uh, I was involved with was you don't need a big budget to deliver the core gameplay experience that excites you to players. Um, you don't need a lot of the extraneous bells and whistles that adds a lot of cost to a game. You don't need like a 30-man team or a 60-man team or a, you know even more than 90. You can make a game that focuses on the systems you think are fun without blowing the budget into unrealistic levels. And I think more modest approaches to things that you're passionate about are absolutely possible. And I think when you explain it that way to players and you show them how it's going to play out, I think that players will also understand that maybe there's other ways to go about creating fun experiences. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm rarely in a situation where budget isn't a factor. Budget usually was always the, the eye of Sauron, uh, that was always, you know, looming over everything, you know, that was done. But, I think there's probably easier ways to go about delivering a gameplay, you know, a fun gameplay experience you're passionate about that doesn't require, you know, a lot of money. So, uh, and I've already forgotten what the rest of the questions were. If you had a character that you've uh, worked on to be your real life companion slash BFF slash rival, who would it be, and what would you, oh, what would you do together, and why? Wow, that's a lot of companions. Uh, let's see. Um. I'm trying to mentally go through the the inventory list of games. Uh, so if I if I took Planescape first, um, uh, Fall from Grace would be too distracting because uh, she's basically just perfect in every way, except she can you know suck out your soul with a kiss. Uh, but I probably choose more as a buddy because yes. he, he fits in luggage <laughs> pretty easily. And if I ever got into a fight of wits with somebody, then Mort could back me up. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, um, let's see, uh, Fallout New Vegas. Da, 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 da. Uh, you know, I would say Rose of Sharon Cassidy, except that uh, she drinks too much, and uh, she's kind of unpredictable. I, I, I like her attitude and her sass, but ultimately uh, I think she makes a lot of mistakes in her life. <laughs> uh, the only thing I'd be interested in teaming up with her for is to go find out what happened to her father, because uh, I felt like that was a loose thread that never got resolved. Um, in New Vegas, but uh, beyond that, and um, hmm. I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, you know, I I liked doing a lot of the companions in, in Mask of Betrayer. Uh, I think Kayla the Dove, however, was a little bit too religious for me. I think she'd be kind of a downer. Uh, I liked doing 
uh, Gan, the the night the, the the Hag Spawn character, but he he also kind of talks a lot, which I mean, you know, this is a problem with my characters. Uh, and uh, let's see, um, we had some uh, some good best friend potential from uh, the Fallout Van Buren games. Actually, um, we did a different take on this character Elijah, who shows up in uh, the Fallout New Vegas DLC Dead Money under a different personality. But in the Van Buren personality, uh, he was a pretty solid friend to have by your side. He was like this Brotherhood of Steel guy that had forsaken, basically had forsaken all technology. But he had basically devoted himself to all the other you know, martial arts and uh, physical training stuff. So he was a pretty good guy to have uh, you know, watching your back in a fight. We also had this uh, this homage to the original Wasteland game where you could team up with this uh, Mr. Handy administrative robot called Job, who was a very sad individual. Like, you, you felt genuinely bad for him, but uh, the fact that you could sort of, like, give him something to do in this post-apocalyptic world where all the police people went away, and he has no idea what his place is anymore was kind of, you know, I'd like to help that guy out. And uh, actually, one of the companions in Van Buren, actually, you could team up with Zax, which was pretty cool, except that he wouldn't actually <laughs> he wouldn't actually follow you around in the game. He was actually one of the locations in the game. Like you could go to like this place called the Boulder Dome, which is, like the Science Dome, and it was it was shaped to sort of resemble like a human brain, but uh, but Zax actually was the the brain cells of like all the computer systems in the Boulder Dome, and he was kind of your buddy throughout Fallout Van Buren. Actually, if you ever watch the Captain America movie where they, they go down to the one bunker and they find, um, uh, I think, Artem Zola down there, he, his, his consciousness is spread across all those different uh, archaic computer machines. That was kind of part of the idea that we had for Zach's, but some of those machines were failing and you could fix those, and we thought that'd be really a really cool way to go exploring environments and bring back you know material to save save Zax from his Alzheimer's, which we thought was, uh, you know, something that would be compelling for the players. But yeah, no, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff, uh, characters that I enjoyed writing, and some that would make great antagonists, and some make great great pals, but uh, yeah, they kind of run the range. Cool. Kareth asks, after finishing uh, the game, I feel that Pills of Eternity story was just a setup for the expansion. Much like the superhero movies of these days, something happens, but the finale is boring and obvious, because the finale will conclude in the next movie. And now that I've seen the White March Part 1, I have a feeling that's going to be the same thing all over again. Gameplay improvements, but the story itself will be met by the next expansion this time for sure. Could you change my mind about it and convince me to get the expansion? Other than that, I've really enjoyed the game. For the most part, I don't feel like I need to know what happens next. Um, so I, I left Obsidian uh, a while ago, so I can't really uh, speak to, to Pillars of Eternity, and um, I, I didn't actually uh, work on the expansion. I wasn't, I wasn't involved with the White March. Um, uh, although, I will say that uh, in the interest of, you know, uh, get, letting you know, the, the, what I did read about the storyline for the White March at the time, uh, it actually sounded pretty cool. Um, and I felt that, you know, it was a pretty strong uh, self-contained experience, uh, and some of the dungeon ideas especially I thought were pretty cool. And um, this may not be a, a big selling point from, like, role-playing mechanics, but also a lot of the environments that I saw for White March were absolutely beautiful. Like, I feel like like all the, you know, growing pains that comes with doing um, art for a, you know, a 
like the the first pillars game i i feel like everyone now knows exactly what the engine is capable of and they've learned all the tricks and now they're doing now they're using all of those to create some pretty cool environments and they and what i saw sort of had like a really cool icewind dale feel about it which i thought was kind of appropriate and i i don't know i it, it looked it looked it looked pretty interesting to me right so captain hijinks says can you he wants to know what aspects of the characters you designed were cut from the final product in Path of uh, or Pillars of Eternity. Oh yeah, so um, in Pillars of Eternity, um, I did uh, a lot of the groundwork uh, for two companions. Uh, the final implementation of those characters uh, was, was done by. Uh, well, actually, let me, let me back up. So the, the two companions I wrote was the priest companion Durance. Um, and the other one was a cipher character who's kind of like a you know a, a psychic uh, psychic spellcaster I guess is a, the easiest way to describe it and I called the grieving mother and um, of the material that was cut from them uh, the two characters had a shared past that the player could examine by sort of inserting their consciousness into their subconsciousness. Subconsciousnesses. And so what they did is they actually shared this mental dungeon that you could explore through. It was kind of like um, an adventure game sequence where things that you discovered in the main game would suddenly unlock new paths, uh, new items that would suddenly show up when you were going through this memory sequence. And the whole goal of the memory sequence was you're in these people's subconscious but you need to be very careful that you don't let them know you're there. Otherwise, you can't figure out what's really going on. So it was kind of like a, a stealth experience where you're like, okay, well, how do I subtly figure out a way to figure out what the source of this particular scene is? Like, what's the relevance of this? Like, you know, what, you know, what does this particular trail lead to? What's the significance of the lake? Uh, what's the information surrounding, you know, the birthing bell or the grieving mother, like, you know, gave birth to all these children? Like, what's what's the surrounding context? And the idea was you could peel these away kind of like layers of an onion. You know, it might make you cry, too. But at the end of it, it would it would help you realize what had shaped these two characters' personalities and also how you could affect it for either the worse or the better. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way to sort of do a mental dungeon, considering how soul-focused and sort of, like, mentally-focused a Cypher character can be. So uh, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed scripting that sequence. I enjoyed writing it. Uh, and, but ultimately, that, that didn't make it into the, the final version of the game. Um, I, I wrote uh, a good amount of content for those characters, and then the final implementation... I believe Eric Fenstermaker, the creative lead, he did the final implementation of Durance. And then Carrie Patel, who's, uh, who was a new narrative designer we hired for Pillars, she, uh, she did the implementation for Grieving Mother. And also, just so you know, Carrie Patel also is the author of a very cool book called The Buried Life, which was also an experience where I'm like, oh, I know the person, like, do I really want to read this? And I read it, and I was delighted. So it was actually a refreshing <laughs> change of pace. To go, oh, wow, I don't have to be apologetic about this. I actually enjoyed this book, and I can, I can genuinely speak to it. So it, uh, she did a great job. The, the book's called The Buried Life, and I, I really encourage people to check it out. Uh, Carrie, Carrie is a very good writer. All right. No, not who, 42? I'm not really sure. 
Nothu? Nothu, not who. Who the great Nothu? Not yeah. Uh, Nothu forty two asks, uh, played almost every game uh, you've been involved in. Love them all. Uh, there are a lot of old school RPGs on Kickstarter, and I love Wasteland two and Pillars. But then came The Witcher three, uh, long time fan of the series, and it blew all those games away in almost every aspect, technically and visually, of course, because they have more money, but also the area where Wasteland 2 and uh, Pillars could compete, uh, like writing, for example. Witcher 3 proves that great writing doesn't need more text. Uh, Pillars is a lot of reading, and more often than not, it uses length for no reason. Players uh, and readers are lost in a huge wall of words that don't translate to the initial idea of the text very well. Uh, I would love a sequel with less dialogues, but more to say. Pillars is a great game, the system works well, and the general feel is perfect. The writing is impressively good and superior to 95% of the production, but doesn't really make you feel uh, like part of the story. The problem is known, it's way more difficult to write a good story when you don't have a strong cast. Allowing us to create our avatar makes the story less engaging and personal. Not really a question per se, uh, just want Chris's opinion on this. So it sounds like he's talking about the, t- the problems between having a preset protagonist and versus designing your own and the strains that self-designed right. protagonists put on a story. Okay, yeah, no, I, 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 I guess I see the point of the question. The, um, so, I first off, the Witcher series is great. Like, I, I, there, it's it, obviously, um, <laughs> I, I don't have much to object to about that. Uh, I do have a contention as to whether having a set main character improves the role-playing experience or diminishes it. Um, I feel they're two different experiences, and I prefer not having a set protagonist because I like to trust the player, and I also like to trust the player to have their own experiences in addition to scripted moments I might have in the game. Uh, I think you absolutely can create a personal and engaging experience and also allow the player to create their own avatar. And, I, and ideally, that's the way you should do it. Um, I think that when you, be, when you take on a character like, you know, and I'll use a non-role-playing game, when you become Gordon Freeman, I mean, that's, that's still immersive, but at the end of the day, you're not you, you're, you're Gordon. Um, and while that might be a cool interactive movie in some respects, I don't know if that's nearly as strong as providing... Um, and sort of a much more open, engaging experience where you create the person that you want to be and you act out the way that you want to be, which should be, which should be what a role-playing game does for you. Um, so I, I personally prefer the ability to create your own avatar. Um, I recognize that with a set avatar, you can still have a different role-playing experience. But ultimately, I, I, I don't always feel like that role-playing experience is always fully yours, which is an inherent problem. I, I don't know if that really answers the question, but I, I'm just throwing that out there. So I think that, yeah, I, I certainly agree with you. I think it may, uh, probably a lot of players do. I think if you look at, like, what is the most popular computer role-playing game right now? Probably Dragon Age, I would guess. Uh, World of Warcraft? That's not really the same sort of thing. Okay. Like, I'm role-playing game, role-playing game. And if you look at how people reacted to the protagonist in the first one of those games, which you made yourself, versus the protagonist in the second one of those, which was a guy that you're just playing, 
people really loved the Warden in the first game and really disliked Hawk in the second game. And that's why they went back to a self-designed character in the third game, because people were really, really upset about that, and they felt like it just wasn't their character, and it wasn't enjoyable or engaging in the same way. Yeah, I feel like at some level the players just have to to own it, and it's easier to own something that you yourself have created. I do think it's a game designer's responsibility to make sure the reactivity of the world is making you feel like a person and that your consequences matter and that you are an individual. Uh, I, I think those are those are potentially just two separate problems that need to be solved. But yeah, no, I'm I'm all about the avatar aspect. Right. And that was like, I am one of the stalwarts who will vote for a non-voiced protagonist. Oh God, me too. Oh, thank God you said that. But like that, that's not a thing that we're going to get back in that franchise. I think. Yeah, it's yeah. it's kind of a shame. Like I, I think uh, as soon as you put a voice to somebody, like th- that causes a whole Gordon Freeman problem. Like, I mean, that's not a problem, but suddenly that person isn't you. Like, that's, like, right. for example, Nolan North is now voicing you. Like, okay, he sounds great, but, wow, you know what? I, that's not that's not as me as but, it could be. Uh, okay, but just think how good that game is if you are Nolan North. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's an amazing experience for one guy. Man, you know, yeah, I, I, that's, not to go on a tangent, but we had a we had a, a voice casting session, a voice acting session with Nolan North, like, which I'm sure every game developer has had. But man, he did just one character for Alpha Protocol, and he was amazing. Like he was he was professional in the studio. Uh, he got things done early, uh, and we did some retakes. But then he just told us a bunch of really cool stories. And he's okay. such a funny guy, and he was so personable, and it was just a real pleasure. And the character he was playing was so crazy, but he just rolled with it and did such a great job. Like, he, uh, he did this character, Stephen Heck, for uh, Alpha Protocol, who was just crazy. And maybe Nolan is, but he, he just he switched gears and just, <laughs> he just went right into it. It was pretty impressive. Our next question comes from Nick Uffer, who says, Hey, Justin and Paul, you may remember me from life experiences such as undergraduate at Lafayette College. Uh, hi, Nick. <laughs> I don't know how you found this podcast. It's been, it's been years. I, I, I think Nick is stalking you. Yeah, I don't know. We're, we're glad you listen. Yeah. I guess. Uh, he before, says, you're, before you're unfriended. <laughs> yeah. he, says, uh, hi. he says, Chris Avalone is one of my favorite writers and has really helped legitimize video games as an art medium through his writing. So I can't thank him enough for that. That is very good to say. One of Chris's seemingly favorite writing techniques is to take the tropes of a particular fictional universe and turn them upside down or give them a tragic twist, especially tropes that he dislikes. My favorite fictional universe, despite Chris Metzen's best efforts, is Blizzard's Warcraft. If Chris Avalon managed to get a hold of the franchise and were to make a game or quest line, what tropes would he address or outlander's side story would he want to tell? Wow. Okay. Uh, well, first off, that was a, that was a very nice uh, intro. I, I that was a very kind of Nick to say. Thank you, Nick. That was very that was very uh, very touching. Uh, wow, Warcraft. I'm um, not owing because uh, I, like of my reaction to the franchise. Like it's just that I, I feel like Warcraft's kind of already done a whole bunch of upheavals. Like uh, they, you know, they. You know, one of my first reactions. 
which I usually don't follow, is, oh, blow up the universe. But they already did that. Like, they, you know, they had Deathwing show up, and they used, then they used that as a great excuse to, like, reshape all the levels and redo the art. And I was like, okay, that's a pretty clever way to do it. I, I, I don't know how well that was received, but I, you know, I, I, I admired that direction. I thought that was cool. Uh, here, uh, Warlords of Draenor is a great expansion. I, I haven't played it. I haven't played uh, Warcraft, unfortunately, in a, in a while. Um, and, you know, and also Warcraft, like, they made pandas cool. Like, how do you do that? Like, they did it. Like, uh, yeah, I, you don't hire Jack Black. I, apparently, well, now, hold on. I, th- I thought Kung Fu Panda, especially the second one, was pretty fucking didn't, good. Didn't Guillermo del Toro actually yeah, yeah, he was, be behind the Kung Fu Panda franchise? But, yeah, I think that, that Guillermo del Toro is actually, like, the driving force behind Kung Fu Panda, which is very funny to me. Yeah. Because I, those I, don't look like his movies at I all. I thought Kung Fu Panda 2 was incredible. Like, I did not see Kung Fu Panda oh, 2. Oh, uh, you know what, Justin? It's actually, it's really good. Uh, okay. they, they, make, they make a peacock a very impressive bad guy, and it's not just because of the voice actor. It's, they, it's, it's really well done, the combat... And you know what? I'm not going to take an hour and talk about Kung Fu Panda 2, but it's it's pretty. <laughs> Welcome to the Kung Fu Panda cast. So wow. Um, anyway, yeah. So I guess with with all the, with all that stuff with the with, with pandas and Deathwing blowing up the world, and uh, you know, it sounds like they they've really got you know, they've already got like really strong story chops over there, especially I guess with quest integration, which I hear a lot of good things about. Um, I don't know what I'd do. Uh, I I know that when I played Warcraft, I was always partial to the to the Horde. Um, I, 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 my first character was a Tauren, and the, the second one was like just the Forsaken. And I thought the way they introduced the culture of both of those seemingly evil races and then made them made them kind of noble, I thought was pretty awesome. Like, cause I actually felt heroic, even though I was on the Horde side. I'm like, oh, you know, I actually feel proud of my <laughs> the character I've chosen. And, oh, wow, you know, the Forsaken, they're breaking away from the rest of the dead, got they're trying to find their free will. That's oh, that's cool. I feel great. So I, I guess my I guess my long-winded answer is I don't know what I'd do with that, but I think they've already done a number of strong things with the franchise. I'm I'm kind of curious what they do next. Yeah, they're uh, they're doing interesting things, I think. But man, they they need to figure out how to not take a year in between content patches. There, I think their their user base is in a, a bit of a riot. This next question is by uh, Fadwan. I feel like I've got like all the hard names to pronounce. Uh, Nick is a hard name to pronounce. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was. I was. I was back and forth between Nick and Nayak. You're right. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I'm sorry for ruining everyone's names uh, today. Uh, but uh, how yeah. dare you, Paul? Maybe <laughs> if they had real names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, Fadwan asks, uh, do you enjoy playing the games you make, or does the fact that you wrote them uh, keep you from enjoying them as much as we do? And also, uh, with Numenaria on the horizon, do you think that uh, isometric, text-heavy uh, RPGs are, have a future, or may even have some kind of renaissance? Okay, uh, so I guess I'll start with the end, end part of that first. Uh, with Numenera. Absolutely, uh, I think that there already ha- there are we already are in a renaissance of uh, more text-based isometric RPGs. I think uh, uh, Wasteland Two proved that out. Uh, Numenera certainly proves that out. Uh, I think a lot of old franchises that people assume that players wouldn't want to play anymore, especially from that camera angle, are definitely making a comeback. Uh, so, and a lot of the work for Numenera feels 
very much like working on uh, working on Planescape Torment, which is kind of a, like a nice nostalgia nostalgia feel. It's one of the uh, the lead area de- the, the lead area designer George Zeitz, who I worked with on Mass Betrayer. Um, he um, he recently took us on a tour of sort of all the quests for uh, one of the locations in the game, and uh, it was a pretty dark journey, but it was a really fascinating journey because George has a really good talent for showing how the quest lines can branch out in really cool ways. And also he has this really great skill to sort of like do a one sentence description that summarizes everything's everything that's cool about the premise of the quest. And I, I can't talk too much about what he told us, but it was fascinating. It was about an hour long presentation. I really wish they'd filmed it or I, I hope they film it and share it because it was a great approach to how to share a level design to a team and get them really motivated to to get rolling on it. George George did a great job. So I guess the, the short answer to the question is I think we're already in a renaissance. I think we'll see even more games like that. Um, and I, for one, am happy about it because I certainly do enjoy working in those games. I got my start doing those games, like a Black Isle. Um, but I, I do think we're in the middle of that renaissance, and I, I'm very excited to see where it will go. Uh, so, do I, let's see, um, do I enjoy playing the games that, uh, work, that I work on? Uh, so, yes, but in a different way. Um, I think that early on, we already know like where the character arcs and the plot line is going to go, so the, the thrill there is kind of diminished. But the excitement that you usually get is almost on a daily basis because you get to see the storyline come to life. And you're like, oh, the NPC character that only had like a paragraph of text like describing who they were, now there's the actual dialogue with them that you can experience. And you're like, okay, well, now I'm going to shape that and write that. And, oh, wait, that gets me more ideas for this other guy over here. Or like an, another way of introducing the theme, and you get really excited about that. And then the voice acting comes online, and then you get even more excited about it. It's like, oh, wow, you know, like that, that went in a direction I didn't expect. And that's the, the, the actor's take on that character is really neat. Or, you know, or he was right on with what I, you know, with what I originally imagined, except he did it way better. And then, um, so generally almost every day ended up being a new surprise for, you know, seeing the story sort of come to life. Um, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of painful when you realize... Um, when it doesn't quite hit the level that you want it to be. Um, like, you know, if you have a certain idea for the plot line or a certain idea for a quest um, that just can't make it into the game for whatever reason, that can usually be a bit disheartening because then you see what could have been when other people play the game and you realize that it's 80% of what the intention was. But th- the nice thing about that is usually you can take elements like that and they either can be like uh, DLCs or go into sequels or even, you know, for certain game mechanics or character ideas, those just become more fuel uh, for your next game. Uh, like, uh, you know, uh, you know two, oppor- two, two examples that popped to mind is like when we couldn't get uh, Ulysses as a companion in New Vegas, you know, that didn't mean we'd flush the character. It just meant that there was an opportunity to introduce him as an antagonist across like all the new Vegas DLCs, and that that ended up being I know an equally exciting take on the character that wouldn't have been possible if he hadn't been cut in the first place. And then um, when doing like Planescape Torment, uh, one of the antagonists, uh, Ravel, the Night Hag, 
like you you only meet her once. Well, you actually meet her a few times actually, but her core character you only get to meet once. And th- there was much more that I would rather have done with her character, but you know, then Knights of the Republic, Knights of the Republic Two, the Sith Lords rolls around, and suddenly I get to explore the idea of well, you know, what if Ravel had been a character in your party, and now I can I can make Kreia that character and give her some of the elements I wanted to explore about Ravel, but in the context of the Star Wars universe, which again is another opportunity, because then that puts a different perspective on it than I was considering, and it ends up making it you know even more exciting. So there's there's benefits and drawbacks. Uh, but usually the benefits outweigh the drawbacks. All right. Well, we're we're actually uh, reaching the end of our podcast time. It was so quickly. So I wanna I wanna ask you just a few more quick questions. Shoot. Then we'll then we'll wrap it up. The first uh, is what, how how is your uh, time at Hogwarts going? You recently announced that you had taken a position as a defense against the dark arts teacher there. Well, everyone at Hogwarts has been really nice, but they don't seem to think that I'll last out the year. And I don't really know why that is, but as long as there's tenure, I think that I can deal with it. And the students are very bright. Um, I think that some of them get up to shenanigans, but uh, we'll see how the the book plays out. Yeah, I, I hear that tenure lasts uh, even if you are dead. You could just keep teaching. <laughs> Hogwarts does have that provision. It's actually pretty generous. A lot of, it, a lot of its benefits like that. Yeah. Thanks, um, Hogwarts. Do you, are, do you have any any hints for what you might be doing after Hogwarts or not yet? Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff I, I, I can't talk about right now, but I hope to be able to talk about it uh, in the near future. We'll see how things right. shake out. Um, but, I, but I do encourage people, like, if you want to see a really interesting take on an antagonist, and I, and I don't mean a villain, <laughs> uh, definitely check out uh, Siege of Dragonspear, because one of the things that I absolutely loved about that game was the fact the antagonist, the challenge she presents to the player is that she's actually a better protagonist than you are, ah, I which I that. thought was absolutely brilliant. And it really made me stop at points in the game and go, wow, am I really being the best hero that I could be? Or is this person absolutely... <laughs> it was so well done. She's the hero of another story. Yeah, so right. kudos to, kudos to the, the Beamdog writing team. Uh, to, they, they did a great take on the antagonist, and it really... Like, I, I, I still evaluate her now that, now that the playthrough's over, and I, I still cite her in various like villain conversations as, well, there's ways to do villainy that's not villains. It's just a diff- it's just an antagonist and a challenge that can actually raise interesting questions for the player. And I think they did an excellent job of that. Right. The antagonist does not have to be a bad guy. Absolutely. Evil. All right. Uh, and so we always we did we hadn't started this tradition last time you were on, but we have since. We always ask our our guests, what is their favorite cheese? Ooh. Uh, well, uh, my favorite cheese is Monterey Jack. Oh. Huh? You came out with that very quickly. You clearly, you've put thought into it. I I make that decision every time I order a bacon cheeseburger, and they give me cheese options. I'm always like, you don't need to go any further. Do you have Monterey Jack? And they're like, yes, we do. Or sometimes, sadly, they say, no, we do not. Sometimes they I, have Pepper Jack, but not Monterey Jack. I would settle for Pepper Jack. It, it, it is just jalapenos in Monterey Jack, right? So I like it. I, I would settle for that. I, I usually prefer Monterey Jack, but Pepper Jack I would also accept, especially if it's spicier, which it sounds like it is. Yes, it is It yeah. is just a Monterey Jack just riddled with jalapenos in it. I, my life is a sham. 
<laughs> Maybe you have a new cheese coming up. All right. Pepper Jack, otherwise I'm out of here. <laughs> All right, so if people wanted to get in contact, I guess not in contact with you, if people wanted to follow you in some way, where, where would they look to find your stuff? Well, uh, you are welcome to, uh, I have a Twitter that's uh, imaginatively enough called at Chris Avalon. And if you guys ever have any, if anyone ever has any questions or things they want to ask me, I always try and do my best to uh, to respond to questions there. I don't get to everybody's, um, but I do make an effort to try and give everyone a response if they ask. Um, also, uh, if you want to follow me on Facebook, you're absolutely welcome to do that as well. Uh, I have to confess that I rarely have time to go through my full inbox <laughs> uh, for Facebook, uh, but I I will make the make the effort. Twi- Twitter is usually a better place to reach me. But don't but don't say that. If they know they can just ask you a question there, they won't listen to the podcast anymore. <laughs> no, they'll just ask different questions. Probably. Then I can then I can save them for the next podcast. Oh, there you go. Um, if people wanted to get in contact with us or or ask us questions or more likely ask our upcoming guests questions, how would the best way to be that doing to be doing that be? That, that is that a be doing that be that. Yeah, uh, you could be doing that by doing be. Um, uh, <laughs> that's, that's even worse. Yeah. Um, you, you could do that by uh, finding us on our website, redpagespodcast.com. It has most of our contact information. We are on Twitter, Facebook. We have a subreddit. I think we have a vote. I don't think so. Reddit. I don't know. What, I don't know what those are. Subvotes. Whatever. Um, if if it's set up. Blame Gord. Uh, you can email us at theredpages at gmail.com. No, the Red Pages Podcast. The Red Pages Podcast at gmail.com. Make sure that you have the the in there. Let's just register every version of uh, Red Pages <laughs> and podcast <laughs> under Gmail and just send them all to each other. It ends up being simpler. So use some combination of Red Page and Podcast in an email and we'll probably get it. Alright. So, so, podcasts. Page red at gmail. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I want to say thanks. Thank you again, Chris, for uh, for coming on the show. It's been, as always, a great time. Well, Justin and Paul, thank you very much for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I, I enjoyed the questions, and yeah. also the the, uh, the 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 what are you doing, reading, watching uh, segment. I, I always, I actually, strangely enough, we, rare, we rarely have those discussions. Uh, I mean, uh, during my work day. So the fact that I was able to engage in that was was a welcome welcome thing. So thank you very much. Okay. Um, I don't know who our next guest is yet because our podcast might be taking a slight hiatus while I move to California. Oh, uh-huh. congratulations! Yeah. <laughs> and if it doesn't, Gordon and I will yeah, figure Gordon out how Paul to podcast. Will be will be soldiering on, uh, figuring out how to record it while I'm not here. If <laughs> if it uh, if it doesn't go on break. But uh, if we don't come at you in the next couple of weeks, we will be back uh, once I know, like, how much furniture is in my apartment. (laughs) (laughs) You take inventory. So so, um, uh, until then, have a good time. Have a good night, everybody. Uh, Goodbye. Yeah. It is the future. Robots will take care of everything for us. Yeah, I heard that a robot just passed the self-awareness test. Oh, yeah.
Was that a, is that the it's not the Turing is that the Turing test? I don't know if it was the Turing. Oh no, it couldn't have been oh. the Turing test because the way they did it was they had three robots and they disabled all of their speech capacity, like their ability to verbalize, and asked them all. Told them we have disabled one of your abilities to speak. Are you, are you the robot that has had its ability to speak disabled? And two of them had been disabled. One of them hadn't. And the one that hadn't said, I don't know, and then immediately said, oh, I know, and it's not me, because it heard itself. Fascinating. And was- oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Have, you guys yeah. ever seen that, have you guys ever seen that movie, The, uh, the Machine? Uh, no, no, I haven't. They, uh, they open up the movie. Well, I, when I say open up, like within the first ten minutes, they're actually going through one of those tests, and uh, it's a pretty simplistic setup from a sort of a stage direction kind of capacity, but the way they pull it off is really... Uh, it's really kind of cool. In fact, that entire movie is kind of cool, even for being low budget. They make a lot of uh, good decisions. Anyway, I recommend it. I'm going to shut up now.